Open your Bible to the first chapter of Exodus. We are in a series on Sunday nights where we're just taking a few minutes and giving a high-altitude flyover, not really a full survey, but just a, a look at each of the books of the Bible individually to see what is compelling in there so that we can read it with greater insight, so we can read it with a greater eye to what it was intended to communicate. All of Scripture is the revelation of God, and we could go through each book and say, this is what we learn about God, theology proper in each one of these books. And that's exactly what we're gonna look at tonight. Exodus is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I'm sure it is one of yours as well. If, if you ask someone what they think of the book of Exodus, you're almost always going to get a like, likely, you'll get a summary of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, right? Uh, an epic movie. Uh, in, in fact, full disclosure, it's difficult for me to read uh, anything about Moses in the Bible without picturing Charlton Heston. It's just that's, uh, even though Charlton Heston was a trained act actor, a great order, and we know that Moses had no communication skills, in fact, had to communicate through Aaron. So uh, he wasn't the great orator that uh, Heston was, but I have a hard time thinking of Moses as looking anything different than Charlton Heston. By the way, that movie uh, is is extrapolated almost entirely, two plus hours, two and a half hours of that come from a chapter and a half of, of the first two chapters of Exodus. Uh, so much of it is uh, wonderfully dramatized and um, wrong. Um, uh, Moses did not have a, a girlfriend in Egypt. Um, Moses was he didn't have a revelation that he was a Hebrew later in life. He grew up as a Hebrew. He was actually raised by his mother, nursed by his mother. When he was grown, he was given back to Pharaoh to become her, her, uh, uh, her daughter, her son. Uh, but he grew up knowing exactly who he was. So it's, uh, it's important that you read the Bible to get your facts about the Bible and not let Hollywood dictate those to you. Uh, the book of Exodus and the exit from Egypt uh, is one of the most epic events in all of biblical revelation. The Jews have been exiled by God's kindness to Egypt because of Joseph's kindness in bringing his family down about 70 from the land of Israel they were there about 400 years, and by the time we opened the book of Exodus, they had grown from 70 to how many? Over 2 million. And not only had they grown to over 2 million, they were quite a labor force for the Egyptians. They were the, the slaves in, in Egypt. And as they, uh, the, the narrative is told over and over throughout the Old Testament and even in the New, it's constantly talking about the freedom from slavery to the Egyptians. It's a picture of salvation that the Bible picks up over and over and over and even applies that picture to our salvation in Christ as a direct corollary and parallel. Now, the authorship of, of Exodus is Moses. Now, I could go through lots of internal um, uh, semantic domain and all the vocabulary used. That, that's not necessary. If you believe that Jesus was the perfect man and never told a lie, then we know for sure that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. We'll see this in, in just a few weeks. In Mark 12, Jesus says, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you, he's speaking to the Sadducees, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, that's in Exodus, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He goes on to say that he, uh, because God said, I am their God now, that means there's a resurrection, they're alive, they're not dead forevermore. But the point of the passage uh, for us tonight is that Jesus affirmed that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. It is absolute historical fact. It is not conjecture. It is not the stuff just for Cecil B. DeMille to, to make uh, wonderful movies. Now, the book breaks down neatly into two sections. We're going to look at these in two big sections and pull some uh, lessons out of them. The first is salvation from Egypt. That's the first, 19, first 18 chapters, rather. Salvation from Egypt. That's the Exodus event. Exodus is, is simple to remember. It means exit. It's the exit from. The salvation from Egypt. 
And the second is verses uh, chapter 19, rather, through 40, and that's the regulations for godly living, living or the giving of the law. We'll, we'll break it down into those two main headings and work from there. Let's look at number one. Salvation from Egypt, Exodus 1 through 18. Salvation from Egypt or the Exodus event from Egypt. Now, the book of Exodus, when you read it uh, carefully, is an explosion of God's powerfully redemptive nature on behalf of the people who have been oppressed and slayed and slaved for over 400 years. Uh, and a little footnote as we're talking about reading Exodus, I, I spoke to a friend this last week who said, when we're doing, while we're doing this series, in the in-between two weeks, are we meeting, we're meeting every other Sunday, and in, in between the two weeks, he's reading each book ahead of time. I've talked to someone else who says, after you introduce the book, I'm going to read it in the two weeks after. I, I don't think it matters. But I think a great opportunity to take two weeks and to read these books as we get a, a high-altitude view of it might be really helpful. So remember, the Jews have been multiplied from about 70 people to over 2 million, and they are slaves to the Egyptians. Just a little insight, because we use a metaphor all the time that is a little misguided. We talk about making bricks with no straw, right? And there's this idea that Pharaoh said, I'm going to have you make bricks, but you're not going to have any straw to make the bricks. Well, that would have been impossible because they would not have been able to make the bricks with no straw. Um, in fact, what he said is, you're going to have to go gather your own straw. You can't, you can't have it supplied anymore. Apparently, they were bringing, the Egyptians were bringing the straw to the, um, to the uh, uh, Hebrews, and they were using it. But uh, God says, uh, the Pharaoh said, you now have to get your own supplies. You have to get your own straw. So even when we use metaphors from the Bible or little colloquialisms, let's make sure that we're getting the exact data right. Well, turn to chapter 3 for a minute because this is where the story really ramps up for the, biblical, for the rest of biblical revelation relating to who God is. As I said, all of Scripture is revealing the nature of God, the character of God, the revelation of Him. It reveals to us about Him and from Him. It is absolutely clear and perspicuous. Now, when you pick up the, the, the narrative in chapter three, <clears throat> a lot's happened in two chapters, which just take you a few minutes to read, but take you about two and a half hours in Cecil B. DeMille's movie. So it's pretty simple. Uh, Moses has um, grown up as a Hebrew, also as a son of, of the daughter of Pharaoh, and uh, has been exercising some leadership among the Hebrews, saw a uh, an abuse situation with an Egyptian over a Hebrew, killed the Egyptian, hit him in the sand, thought no one had seen him. In fact, it says he looked both ways and no one saw him. And then he threatened another Hebrew, another Egyptian, I think the next day. And he said, are you going to kill me like you did the other one? Well, he was in trouble. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. He was on the run, went to Midian, found out uh, uh, his, his roots, found a wife. It's a, all in just a few verses, not two and a half hours of a movie. When we come to chapter 3, where Moses is invited up on Sinai, up on the mountain. And this is worthy of us reading with almost a holy hush and our ears tuned to think about who is this God? He was just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Jews. He was uh, uh, someone they prayed to, someone that was in their distant memory banks. Chapter 3, now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet... It was not consumed. Full confession, I was at the men and boys camp out on Friday night already thinking about this passage, watching the wood burn. And it just burns and burns and burns. And Jordan Jacobson kept putting more and more wood on it. And you had to keep feeding the fire. This bush was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. 
So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near me. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Don't miss the irony here. He stops to look at the bush Hears God's voice from the bush and hides his face, afraid to look at God. This was intuitive. He understood and perceived the holiness of God by being in his very presence. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. What a great statement! What a devotional moment. God has never missed one moment of any of his children's suffering. He's always aware. He's always looking. He's always present. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And to bring them up from the land to which... To a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. We also learn something about the Egyptians here, don't we? For 400 years, they had prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob whose name we're about to discover they did not know. Living in a land in Egypt where all of the names of all the gods were in their face all the time. Therefore, verse 10, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh. Stop right there. (laughs) Stop the presses. Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. Can you imagine hearing that? I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. If that's not enough, so that you may bring two million people, my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? God says, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God here at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14 sets the agenda for the incarnation of this God. Because it is, Jesus, it is Jesus who will say, Ego me, I am in the garden. And literally people will fall down at the power of him uttering this exact name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Can you imagine waiting to hear the name of God? All the creative names of the gods of Egypt, the sun god, the god of frogs, the god of mice, the god of the Nile, the god of grain, the god of cattle, all had these unique and special names. What's the name of our God, Moses? I am. I am. God furthermore said to Moses in verse 15, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Just in case they miss that the I am is not him, he double accents that. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. I am always the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am, I am as well. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Communicate that I know and that I care. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, and Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite to the land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to what you say and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion unless he has to. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. In fact, every woman will ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder your oppressors, the Egyptians. It's quite a task, isn't it? I'm often amazed when I read this that chapter four follows chapter three. What I mean by that is Moses said, great, but I'm not a good public speaker. So, and he likely wasn't, so God sends Aaron with him to be the mouthpiece down in chapter four. Now, what I find striking, turn over to chapter five. There's rich and deep theology and practical application for us here in chapter five. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, so now they're in court with with Pharaoh. This is not the first time they've been there, but they're standing in court with Pharaoh and he's about to increase the labor on the sons of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, look at this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let that people go? You better believe that Moses should have had an answer to that. And frankly, that is such a paradigmatic answer to the world. People could and should ask you, who is your God? Who is Jesus Christ that I can have what we talked about this morning, radical commitment and discipleship to him? In other words, who the God is who we serve dictates the the amount of affection, allegiance, and conviction and commitment we have toward that God. Moses was to have an answer for who God is, and if you keep reading, he did. God judged Pharaoh in Egypt with 10 plagues. By the way, all of which dealt with the gods of Egypt. You can look right there in verse seven, uh, by the way, if you remember we were talking about the straw earlier. You were to no longer give the people, Pharaoh is saying, straw to make their brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. See that? Yeah, it's impossible to make bricks without straw. So it wasn't that they had to invent some kind of new brick. It's that they had to give all their supplies, which apparently they had been supplied before. So God judges Pharaoh, and over the next few chapters, you see 10 plagues, all of which specifically address one of the Egyptian gods. And then we come to the last one. Look at chapter 12. The last plague is the death of the firstborn. Firstborn of the slaves, firstborn of the Egyptians, firstborn of the cattle, And in order for the angel of death to, here's the word, pass what? Over the children of faith, the children of Israel, they were to take a lamb, the Passover lamb, 
and consecrate it. Look at chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, chapter 12, verse 1, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. In other words, push reset. Reset will be now be, be established based on my dealing in this great Passover observance. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. This gets even odder. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor and the nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of the persons in them, according to what each man should eat, and you are to divide the lamb. Let's just say it's, it's, it's a husband and wife. They don't have children yet, and there's a family next door that has a full family. It doesn't make sense for them to have a full, uh, they, they can't consume a whole lamb, so they would partner up with, with a neighbor. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So this could be a little lamb, a sheep, or it could be a little goat. Either was fine. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Stop. What day did they get this lamb? The 10th. They keep it from the 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, five days. They keep this lamb with them in the home. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel, the top of the doorpost and the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at at all with water, but roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over until morning, but what is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, you're ready to go, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what unfolded. What I find remarkable about this is that this was going to be a perpetual picture of God passing over, giving grace, exercising mercy, not giving them what they deserve. The wages of sin is death. All of those Israelites would have died eventually, but they didn't die that night. God passed over them in judgment. He exercised mercy and grace and patience and kindness. He didn't judge them immediately because they, as a family unit, sometimes with neighbors, killed a lamb so that they wouldn't, the firstborn wouldn't die. We see Jesus coming to be baptized with John the Baptist, and he says, Behold the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is then going to be partnered, as we'll see in Leviticus, with the Day of Atonement, which was not only a Passover lamb, but was also an atoning sacrifice. An amazing confluence of these two ideas. This picture is graphic. Father would take all the family and they would come together. That little lamb who had been in the house for five days had no doubt become a pet. Little kids would watch as the father bent down, bound its feet together, sliced its throat. Blood would begin to pour out with a heartbeat rhythm 
and then it would lay lifeless, convulse, and then die. This would be exercised year after year after year. And the idea was this lamb didn't do anything wrong, transferred over to the Day of Atonement. It's, it died so that I wouldn't have to. The firstborn here, all of Israel, in Leviticus 16 and 17, picturing John the Baptist saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you are in fact unleavened. Listen, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Paul specifically says that Christ is our Passover. We were passed over in judgment because he was not and received the judgment for us. With that last plague, Pharaoh finally lets the Jews go only to chase them. Look at chapter 14. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not fear, they're standing at the edge of the Red Sea. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. In the Hebrew, there's a double never, never ever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Go forward where? Into the sea. Pharaoh, after letting the people go, after the death of his own firstborn, gets angry and says, no way, retribution, go get them. They send the army after As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them through the sea. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and horsemen. How will God be honored through Pharaoh and the horsemen and the chariots and the soldiers chasing the sons of Israel? Just watch. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Hebrews explicit, I am the Lord. When I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen, the angel of God, verse 19, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with darkness, yet it gave Light at night. We find out later this is a pillar of cloud, a tornado of cloud in the day, and a tornado of light, of fire at, after sunset. Thus one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were Divided. Yes, I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments scene as well. <laughs> the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like the wall on their right hand and on their left. Just imagine that scene. Little kids, some amazed and some frightened. You probably have both kinds of kids in your, in your household. Keep walking. The Lord's hand is staying the water. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. They were getting the picture. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, 
over their chariots and over their horsemen. They were driving with difficulty so they could not retreat. They were stuck on the bottom of the Red Sea floor. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, into the water. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, look at verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Some interesting parts of that narrative. They had likely gotten most of the way across the sea so that when the sea collapsed on them, some of them, their bodies washed up on the side of the shore where, where Israel was. They saw the bodies and they feared. The parting of the Red Sea became a point in Israel's history where they looked back and said, God saves And God saves through miraculous means. That's the first 18 chapters, covers the narrative. But something changes in the genre when you get to chapter 19. Everything from chapter 1 to 18 is is narrative. You understand what I mean by that? It's story. It's it's what happened. When you get to chapter 19 through chapter 40, the, the, the genre changes to legislative. It's laws. It's It's regulations. So we come to the, big, the second big division, number two, regulations for godly living, the giving of the law. Let me say very carefully, please mark this in your mind. The law is not given in these chapters. The law was never intended to be given so that people could be saved by it. The law was given so that people could be sanctified by it. In other words, a love for God issues forth in a desire to obey his law, to love his law. You don't obey the law so that you can be saved. That was the the error of the second temple Jews who had been uh, teaching this kind of works-based salvation to which Paul writes in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. It says, no one was ever saved by works of the law. Now that the people of God have been saved from slavery, they've saved from, they're saved from oppression, God graciously now teaches them what he expects from them in the giving of his law. Understand, the law was never a burden to Israel. It was a grace. Every other nation, every other tribe, every other religion woke up every morning wondering what kind of mood their God or goddess was in. Not the people of Yahweh, of God. Just a footnote, Yahweh is the way we kind of say the the four... Letters, we call it the ineffable, the unspeakable, tetragrammaton, the unspeakable four letters that make up a word. Yod, hey, wow, hey, Yahweh. And later the uh, Jews wanted to not say that name, so they added verbs from the, uh, the word Adonai to that, and they got Jehovah, which is, 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 is a made-up word. Um, Yahweh, you've heard people say that. That, was, that just means I am. That was the name. Well, in chapter 19, Moses goes up on Sinai and he receives the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Now, I'm gonna go over this very quickly. We've done this in in recent uh, years and maybe several years ago. But what were the 10 commandments? The 10 commandments were not what you might think they are, just a bunch of rules, just 10, 10 rules. The 10 commandments were the Bill of Rights, For God and others. We have the Bill of Rights that protects your rights, my rights. And praise God we live in America where we have a Bill of Rights. I'm thankful for that. But this is just the opposite of the Bill of Rights from the American standpoint. 
These, four, these 10 words actually protect the rights of God and protect the rights of others from you and me. Look at them. You shall have no other gods before me. This is chapter 20. No other gods before me. That's God's right to exclusive allegiance. Think about that. He has the right over all his creatures to be exclusively worshiped. You will have no other gods before me. God's right to exclusive allegiance. Commandment number two, you shall not make an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth below or in the water under the sea. That's God's right to define his image. God defines who he is, we don't. In a few chapters, the people are going to actually try to define God by saying he looks like a cow, the golden calf. It's God's right to define his own image. Number three, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's the right of God to honor and respect. That's taking God's name in vain. We've talked about this before. That doesn't mean cussing or cursing. That has about a a, a multi-layer away application. Um, What it means is you shall not take the name of the Lord in a vain way. You don't take on the name Yahweh or Jew for you and me as Christian. You don't take the name in a vain way. You you don't say that you belong to God and not act like it. That's what the third commandment's about. It's not about cussing. The fourth commandment. And the fourth commandment, it, it, it has something to do with God's rights and something to do with others' rights. You shall... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's God's right to tell his creatures what to do whenever he wants to. But it's also the creatures, people, and even in Deuteronomy 5, cattle and animals, their right to having a day off, to being treated kindly and fairly. You do understand that the biblical work week was six days, right? With a one-day weekend. I like America. I'm not going to argue with that. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's the right of your parents to respect. They have the right to be respected. If they're right or wrong, if they're kind or unkind, they, because of who they are, have the right to the respect of our children. Us to our parents and our children to us. You can also expand that out as the Westminster Catechism did and said all authority should be respected by a Christian. But I think primarily it's about your father and mother because that's the first and most uh, lasting lesson in anyone's life. Commandment six, you shall not r- murder. You know what that is? Pretty simple. That's the right of others to live, to have life. They have a right to be alive. We don't have the right to take their life. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. That's the right of others to a pure and protected marriage. Someone who commits adultery is not respecting the right of the married people, one of whom who you're interacting with in an inappropriate way. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Pretty simple. That's the right of others to property. They have a right to their stuff. You don't have a right to go grab their stuff. One of the first lessons of the four-year-old class downstairs, right? Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That means if there's a court case, you don't come and say something that's not true, a false witness. That's the right of others to an honest reputation. We don't bring others down by mistruths. And then lastly, 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's the right of others to security. They should feel secure around you that you're not going to take advantage of them in any way with anything they own or anything they have. The purpose of the law was that we would learn to die to self and promote God and his values and his rights and others and their values and our rights. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus said? Take up your cross and follow me by denying yourself. It's the same God with the same regulations. Then you go after chapter 20 into a series of um, uh, what we call casuistic laws, case law, uh, for those of you who are in law. There's, there's two kinds of laws that God gives. These are important. Apodictic laws 
and casuistic laws, apodictic and casuistic. Standalone laws and case law. Standalone law is do not murder. It's not attached to any case. A, a, a casuistic law is if your neighbor is on top of your roof and you have not put up a guardrail, this is in Exodus, and they fall off, that's on your fault. That's a case law. But if you have a guardrail that you've secured and they fall off instead, that's their fault. In other words, there are case laws which tell us something about God and apodictic are just, you shall not commit a murder, you shall not commit adultery. Apodictic, standalone laws. By the way, all of the nations in the minor and major prophets were held accountable to the apodictic laws, even if they didn't have them in their codes. There's something written on our conscience about those apodictic, standalone moral laws. We've talked about this before, but turn over to chapter 33. Moses does deliver them beyond uh, Egypt. They come to Sinai. We've talked about this many times before, but I think it's important to remember the idolatry of, of what the people actually did. Verse chapter 32, Moses goes up on the mountain for the second time at least, maybe the third. There's some debate on whether this was number two or number three. People saw that he delayed to come down from the mountain. This is about 40 days. The people assembled around Aaron and said to him, come and make us a God. Think about that statement. Make us a God, Aaron, who will go before us. Because as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Now, a little footnote. They know Moses went up on the mountain and every day they're seeing the pillar of cloud in the day up on the mountain and at night they're seeing a tornado of fire. They know something's going on up there. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. So he says to them, verse two, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. All the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and said to them, this is so important. This is your God, O Israel. Which one? Which God? Who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He wasn't saying this was a new God. He was saying Yahweh is in this cow. The God of the universe, I just confined to an idol, an absolute ravaging misapplication and ignorance of the second commandment. Well, they make a party for this cow. The party included dancing and music, and it was loud and Guess who comes back to camp during the party? Verse 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf, the dancing. And Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hand. These were the, 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 the law, the tablets of the commandments of God. Shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it over the surface of water and made the sons of Israel drink it. And then God lets us hear the conversation between Moses and Aaron. This is one of those ones you think, ah, I'd really like to hear what, what they're saying. And then you also go, ooh, this is awkward. I'm not sure I want to hear this. Moses said to Aaron, verse 21, what did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do, do, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. Blame what? What? Shifting. For they said to me, make us a God who will go before us. That was actually true. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. That's true. What we're about to read in verse 24 is not true. And moms who have heard little white lies or black lies or green lies from your kids have probably never heard one this outrageous. I just want to say to Aaron one day in heaven, 
Is that the best you could come up with? Remember, he took it with his hand. The Hebrew is explicit. The English is explicit. He fashioned that gold into a cow. He did it. Verse 24, I said to them, Aaron says, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and bam, out came this calf. Oh, come on, Aaron. Because of that, the leading presence of God exited Israel. He was leading them by pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He stopped that presence except that would come back in the tent of meeting that Moses would set up outside the camp. The Lord would descend in verse um, chapter 33. Um, he would speak, verse 11, to Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. You know the story. We've talked about it many times. So Moses says, show me your glory in verse 18. Show me your glory And he said, I will make all my goodness, which is his glory, pass before you and will proclaim. Moses says, show me something. God says, I'm gonna tell you something. Establishing a very important principle from this point until the book of Revelation that faith is the area and realm in which we live. One day faith will become what? Sight. Moses said, I wanna live by sight. Show me. God said, I'm gonna tell you. He hides him in the cleft of the rock. Little fisher probably supernaturally puts him behind a crack where he's in a little, little uh, space where all he can see through is a little crack. And God says, I'm gonna walk by, put my hand over your face and you can see my backside, the backside of my glory, kind of like the train of my robe, but my face you cannot see. Why would he put his hand over Moses' face? Because he would have peaked. And you would have to. Chapter 34, it happens. There's something kind of funny, humorous in verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. (laughs) So be ready by morning. He comes up in the morning, cuts the two stones in verse four and then he's put in the rock in the cleft of the rock, in the fissure, God walks by, puts his hand over his face. He sees his backside. And you know what Moses saw? You wanna know what he saw? Verse five, 34, chapter 34. The Lord descended and the cloud stood there and called as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Moses didn't record what he saw because what God said was more important. God is fundamentally a verbal God. He's given us A book, not a video. His word, not a movie. The Lord, the Lord God. Oh, this is so wonderful. Here's what God is like. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. One of my favorite Hebrew words. Long-nosed. The word for anger in Hebrew is short nose. The angrier you get, the shorter your nose gets. God has a long nose. He's slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Faithfulness. He keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Eight demonstrations of his mercy before judgment comes. It's amazing. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the grandchildren, third and fourth generation. This is not talking about us inheriting sin from our grandparents that we now have to pay for. It's talking about the fact that in households, sometimes you had two, three, four generations living in a household and someone's sin and judgment might affect everyone living with you. From chapter 34 to the end, then we have... The regulations, the things that God expresses, regulations for the offerings, regulations for the tabernacle that's gonna be the temporary temple. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, when we get to Leviticus. What do we take away from this? God is the God of salvation. Exodus becomes the pattern in the rest of the Old Testament And as we read in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, for God providing our salvation. We were to think, we are to think, God saved Israel. 
He's a saving God. He provided all they needed for salvation. We have the same saving God who has provided all for us in the final Lamb of God who was the propitiation for our sins, whose life was laid down once, not every year. An obvious parallel between the salvation of the Jews in their physical slavery to the salvation in Christ from our slavery to sin, as Romans 6 describes. So when you read the book of Exodus, read seeing what kind of God reveals himself, what God is like, and see the pattern that he is a saving, gracious, compassionate, kind, and merciful God. Because this is not a God who sent his son. This is a God who is Jesus Christ. The manifestation of God that that we encounter, we'll see this when we get later in the Old Testament. Encountering God, I believe, was always the second person of the Trinity. Because as we learned in Exodus 34, no one, 33, no one can see the Father's face and live this side of, of heaven. So to encounter the final revelation of God, as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, is to see the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is this God. He is amazing. You start looking at the Trinity, who sent who, who became why, just don't even try. The God of the Old Testament became flesh and dwelt among us. I've been <clears throat> listening next door for months now to Aaron uh, play Christmas music in reference and getting ready for the uh, the uh, Christmas concert. It's actually really sweet in my office. We share a wall. And so in July, I get to celebrate the glory of the incarnation through the wall. The, the challenge is he keeps doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and adding parts and adding parts and adding parts and adding parts. And I just want to keep going. Do the whole song, Aaron. But he doesn't. Um, what a gift we have to celebrate. This God became man for us. <laughs> 